You are listening to Something Rather Than Nothing. Creator and host, Ken Vellante. Editor and producer, Peter Bauer. This is Ken Vellante with the Something Rather Than Nothing podcast, and we have Liana Renee Hyber here, author, um, well, I say author, but um, an artist of many sorts. Uh, right off the bat, Liana, I wanted to welcome you to the uh, Art and Philosophy Show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here talking about some of my favorite subjects. Yeah, yeah. I... Um, just as a, a general introduction um, for folks, uh, I encountered the, uh, the newer work, uh, A Haunted History of Invisible Women, uh, True Stories of America's Ghosts, uh, that Liana wrote with uh, Andrea James. And um, it, it's quite the, the book, and it's already, I know, up for um, awards in, in recognition, but I, I just want to to give folks a little bit of a taste of it, like how I felt with it is um, I found it so um, uh, fantastic to have a critical lens, a, a social critical lens uh, when we're talking about ghosts. And I think uh, the way you do your book, you, you capture the authentic experience that individuals can experience of presence of ghosts or specters. And that that's a real experience and you also, in your critical analysis, try to disaggregate all the story and all the other things uh, about why ghost stories might exist. So it has that critical uh, look where whatever ghost story you're getting into, you're, you're taking that that knife and, and that lens um lens to it so um so uh i just wanted to mention uh, to everybody how i encountered uh liana um she's also an actor um uh of course a writer a historian a tour guide and what made me most excited a very proud uh union member of sag after so i'm very excited to hear that first question for you liana um when did you see yourself as an artist and that's an easy question because uh, from my earliest sense of self, and part of that was easy because I was born into an artistic family. And I think when your family are artists, in this case, my father specifically um, was a potter uh, and he's still getting back into potter. He gave up pottery for a while to be an academic um, and, uh, and taught a lot and did a lot of academic advising. But uh, now that he's retired from academia, he's getting back into pottery again some, but I grew up, you know, in a potter studio essentially. And so I was, I really took to art, uh, both uh, drawing line art, as well as music, as well as singing, as well as theater, anything performative, anything storytelling. And I did love making things, you know, so I loved sitting in the studio with my dad and, you know, he would just give me a wad of clay and I would make something out of it um, and and felt very supported in that regard. And so I was very lucky. Um, it was also good to have an example, him as an example, because I learned about how much hard work it is to be an artist right out of the gate. Um, and so we we hustled a lot and it was, you know, there were some lean years, but um, I also knew that that was something that was his calling. And so for me, when I realized my calling lay a little bit more in storytelling than in, um, than in the, than either in 
uh, arts and crafts or um, in like sculptural stuff, uh, I've realized that like that my voice was better in writing and in performing. Um, and and tr so I truly started to think of my art as storyteller because whether it was the written word or whether it was the uh, word performed or making up ghost stories as early as I can remember to scare my Girl Scout troop, which I thought was really fun. Um, so those things, I, I think that that sense of self as a storyteller, it's, it's inextricable from anything else um, in my life. It's really baked into my earliest, earliest memories of myself are memories of me storytelling and, and are memories of me sitting with pen and paper to create a story one way or another. So. Yeah. I, um, I've talked to a few guests, uh, recently with kind of, they do a lot of different types of creativity and, uh, two or three of them come back to that point that you say, you know, as I've seen as kind of foundational, uh, storytelling and, um, in, in, uh, with the different, you know, ways that, that you create, I think that, that forms the backdrop. That's one of the things I like about, uh, podcast, or even in this particular instance, being able to talk about your, your book and those stories in that way to, to tell those stories, what in, in those stories, I wanted to mention a particular point because, uh, it felt different. It felt different to me. Um, a couple points. One is that, uh, the, some of the, the, the women, uh, uh, spirits um and presences have agency towards <laughs> the world uh in 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 your description i'll give you one particular example that startled me when i heard it and inspired me as a as a labor guy that the ghost this particular was ghost was there to remind us of u.s labor laws that um in some of the uh industrial uh, incidents or the incidents with the triangle uh, factory fire, which you cover in there, that there's um, such deep wrong <laughs> that's happened uh, to humans, but to imagine agency on the other side, or if, if, if ghosts uh, warn, or if they protect further from that incursion, that's a radical thought. Can you tell me a little bit about <laughs> what I was uh, picking up there? Yeah, yeah. I think when you're talking about ghost stories, when it relates to something as horrific as the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, um, which was the most horrific uh, workplace disaster in this country, it killed 146 people. 123 of them were women and girls as young as 14 years old. And this was at a time before labor laws and at a time clearly before child labor laws. And uh, the fact that any of such things are back in the news again is grieving uh, all of us that work certainly, in these kinds certainly. of fields. So mm -hmm. I feel it's, it's in terms of the warning, if you're going to be talking about a haunted location and when we talk about the Triangle Fire, I get very, very emotional when I talk about it. And so every single time I have to I have to I get addled when I talk about it. I, I will say things out of order. I will. um let myself be completely raw to emotion and my guests feel it. And especially that's, that's we're the right. Space. It's, that's it's, the space. And, and I, yeah. I heard that. So yeah, that tell, yeah, tell us. Yeah. They, I feel like in that moment, the it's, it's tricky because we have to make sure that we're not sensationalizing the site as 
oh, you're going to hear the screams or, oh, or you're going to smell the smell of burning um, or, or, or any of the things that would be sensationalized about any of that. People who describe that place as a haunted place have had some sensory experiences there, a, a bit of an echo. It's, uh, we call it in the paranormal sphere is place memory, that something of that horrible day is kind of there because of the impact of that extreme emotional situation that leaves a mark. It leaves a psychic stain, as it were. And now that can be something really positive, but in this case, it's something really horrific. And I try to make sure that, that when I talk about it, it never comes across like I'm trying to make this a um, something to scare you as a sensationalized narrative, but it should scare you that humans ever locked people in buildings like this and then just let them die. That they they died because of no safety regulations. It was an extremely unsafe workplace. All of the safety protections that could have been in place were ignored by the factory, specifically pointedly. The fire escape was not maintained. Um, uh, the other things that had been implemented in other urban structures to prevent against fire, um, like making sure stairwells were metal. Well, in this case, they were not implemented into metal. They were made of wood. Everything was quickly consumed in 14 minutes. Some could get out through the fire escape on the 10th floor, but most had to jump. And the fire department had not been given enough uh, clearance or funds to create uh, eight story ladders. They only had six story ladders. If you can imagine, the fire department was on hand when it happened, and, and they were two stories away from being able to help anyone. And um, the fire nets were not strong enough to withstand the force of a body jumping from 10 stories. These are horrific things in and of themselves. I don't need to sell any horror on this. I just have to state the facts. Those are horrific things. Why we talk about it on a ghost tour is because there are, there have been noted reports through the years of people having an overwhelming sense of sadness and an overwhelming sense of, of horror, even if they don't know the history of that building. Um, the plaque on the side of the building didn't go up until the last couple of decades. There was a whole period of time where NYU, it's a building that NYU, New York University, uses as a school. So there was a whole time, a period of time where NYU didn't ever want to talk about that building or its history or anything, and they couldn't be bothered with it. It's a part of the uh, biology department now. Um, so even people that didn't know the history felt strange up there on those yeah, top floors. Yeah. So the So something's there. But for us, the, the, the going back to what's so important about this being a labor movement issue is we are honestly not trying to capitalize literally on this error of capitalistic greed and uh, putting uh, pro corporate profits over human bodies, literally. And so we have to be very careful as ghost tour guides that we are saying, okay, this is here's a cautionary tale. And I make this a rallying point of make sure you never, ever, ever, ever ever lose track of your labor laws and make sure you hold your representatives accountable for all of your labor laws. Don't ever let anything erode the safety that we, that literally these women died to Thank you. get us Thank to you. this point. And that's the thing that for me, I, I, the, all I can do to honor the spirits of the, I don't believe, I don't believe that those spirits are still there trapped in any kind of place. That's not, that's just not how that works. They're not stuck there eternally. Um, that's not, that's not how the spirit world works in my, in my world. Um, but that, but the echo of their pain and that cry, the cry of that anguish is there to, to make sure that we, the living do not forget them. 
and we were recently at the anniversary. So Mar March 25th is the anniversary. It was March 25th, 1911 when it happened. And members of the AFL-CIO every year go and lay 146 carnations around the base of that, of the, um, it's called the um, the Brown Building now, but it was called the Ash Building, uh, A-S-C-H, unfortunately, named uh, back in the day. But the Brown Building um, near Washington Square Park in Manhattan. And the AFL-CIO members every year put up a wreath honoring the the members, uh, the, those uh, those that died there, and, and putting carnations with the names of the dead uh, all, along the sidewalk. And um, the, there's a picture of that in the in, in at the top of the chapter that I took uh, on the anniversary. I've seen that photo. Um, I saw yeah, that photo. Yeah, and it's really wow. when I gave a tour that day, and I, I absolutely <laughs> broke down into tears. Um, and again, and I said to my I said to my audience then I say whenever I talk about it I say it right now. God help me if I ever stop being near to tears about this story. Um, and so when, when everyone sees all of those carnations and they're standing at this spot, it is such a powerful thing because you just see how many there are. And it really just goes beyond the me telling the story to seeing that visual with it. And, um, so that's particularly powerful. We try to, to, to just make sure that folks can have an additional impact with that because we, again, we feel like it's a rallying cry that unfortunately in our past few decades, um, you know, certain lawmakers and certain corporations want to keep eroding these safety procedures, these labor laws. Um, but we also are right now in a beautiful renaissance of unionizing and, um, oh, yeah. and that's, that's a glorious thing. So we were really excited to sort of start this book out with the triangle fire as here's the delicate balance that we have as tour guides to deal with this delicately, humanely, but as a rallying cry for action, because these, these dead are meant, we can honor them best by making sure no other children die. Thank you. Th thank you, Leanna. I, I, I gotta tell you, you know, um, I've done, I've done, um, uh, labor work for for 20 uh, 24 years and uh, anybody who's involved with the movement anybody you talk to who's involved with the movement can talk about their relationship with it and and things that are inspiring and um you know just hearing what you had to say made me think of a lot of things and um raising your voice like you did and saying it directly um, allows history not become a passive, like a uh, maudlin affair, which it can be right. so much, you know, like, cause you know, how do you reminisce or think about a hellscape that is that, that, that fire. And I found like, and, and listened to some details that I didn't know, uh, just about the structure itself. It was, it was just so conceptually mind-blowing to me that all the things that would be there for safety to be able to connect the pieces and all that, that's all torched up and you still have the structure itself standing. Uh, yeah. The, way. the, the great irony is that the exterior of the building is fireproof and was built to be so. And yeah, that's, yeah, that's the that sickest was, that thing was, about it. That, that was, and it reopened. I, yeah. It reopened not was, long after it was cleared out and uh, reopened as a factory. And the how long uh, after? owners within like, I think it was, I forget how many months it was. It was like months. It was like, oh it wasn't goodness. even six months. I don't think. Um, yeah, and, and, and there was a, there was a trial, but the owners faced no charges and were 
uh, not sentenced to anything because they had broken no labor laws because there were no labor laws. But my God, was there outrage. Um, and that oh. really, I mean, but it, again, but this is, these, these are things that to go back to the, the movement, uh, yep. you know, garment workers were striking since the 19th century and just the year prior, one of the men who was writing about the incident, who was on hand watching it all unfold, uh, was watching Triangle, was watching burning. The burning was was taking pains to excruciatingly talk about the sound of bodies um, hitting the pavement. And I and I say this to be to be gruesome because the the New York Times reporter was trying to get it through people's heads what was happening and. And he remembered and recalled, he said, I remember those girls marching last year, the uprising of the 20,000, when 20,000 garment workers in 1910, led by Clara Lemlich, a young girl, a garment worker herself, who got up, was be had been beaten by Pinkerton guards, and got up in, this was a year before Triangle, and said to General Assembly, I call for a general strike. And she said it in Yiddish, uh, as many of the uh, attendees there were, were Jewish immigrants. And... And then just everyone poured out onto Union Square and it became the largest labor uh, protest in the history of our country at that point, 20,000. So it's the uprising of the 20,000. So as this New York Times reporter is talking about the, the triangle unfolding, he's like, these girls were trying to warn us then about this. And that's why he went into such gruesome detail about what was happening, because he 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 just he like I want people to really get how terrible it is. And, and some, you know, if, if, if you are sickened, then you might act. It's, you know, it's, it's like, it's like the, the brave parents who have been willing to share some of the autopsy photos of their children have been mowed down by AR-15s in classrooms and it's gruesome and it's horrible, but they're trying to do what they can to sort of raise awareness for something terrible to sort of say, maybe this information might move you. And so the reporters at the time were doing this and just, it is, these details are, are visceral and that, like you said, can make the past present and for us, we can make sure that that we are not on that slippery slope because there are so many ways in which, you know, the world will just grind people up and spit them out. And and so there's, you know, we're uh, you know, we're all in various stages of the gig economy uh, as tour guides, as you know, um, in in various. Yes, I'm a union member for for my my theatrical work and my and any of the film work I do, but that does not apply to some of the rest of the work that I do. So, you know, there's the hustle is real. It's difficult. Um, but I think that that's, uh, uh, that, that rallying cry is just so, so, so important. And I think all of those little details, whatever we can do to make that palpable for people. Um, so yeah, we, we start off with quite a doozy, but I do promise you that the, um, the rest of the book does have some humorous stories in it too. <laughs> There's, there oh, are ways yeah. in which yeah. women can, you know, they, they're able to like rise above, uh, some of the situations that they were in in life and have uh, a bit of celebrity now in, in their afterlife that, uh, the spirits seem to even, you know, delight in. So there's there is a lot of love and uh, and and quirky stuff and and some bad ladies too. I mean, they're not all victims. Some of them are and the absolutely... Jezebel and the Jezebel <laughs> chapter. <laughs> and the mur I mean, I'm specifically thinking of like the murderers. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, even, yeah. Uh, Although the jury's still out on Lizzie Borden, we don't really know. Andrea wrote an amazing <laughs> chapter about her, and I I thought I knew. I think we all knew. We we all think we know. And then she presents all the evidence, and we're like, well, maybe. I don't, I don't know. And I, 
And that's really, that's kind of the great thing about some of these stories is that we, we think we know these urban legends and then we start to really unpack the people behind them. That was our whole point of like this haunted history of invisible women. Like these are, yes. Okay. These are ghost stories. Sure. But there are a lot of urban legend and let's try to separate fact from fiction. And can we try to give you an accurate picture as best we know how this is very difficult because not there's only so much that exists on these things, especially when it comes to ghost lore. It's not very always well documented. A lot of it's a lot of hearsay and not always, not always, <laughs> uh, not always foot uh, with footnotes. Um, so there's a lot of unpacking some of those things, but if the, if these are real people with real records, we can track them to a point, but with women, if their name got subsumed within marriage so that they were Mrs. So-and-so husband's name, there's, it's a lot harder to track them before those t- before that life event. Um, so this was us trying to say, okay, who are the who are the people actually behind this? What were their real lives? And then how, in some ways, were they set up to become the ghost stories that they later became? And in some ways, it was a bit of a hit job, like in the case of Sarah Winchester, where all of these falsehoods were said about her. Um, or in the other case, um, there were ways in which a, ro- a certain romanticization of uh, of some of these women's yeah. stories uh, led yeah. to a different kind of, of of afterlife for them. So we we try to represent a, a real range of experiences. Yeah, and I I I, I think it's um, on on the active component of too. I think with the um, you know the feminist uh, critique and the agency that can come from you know those who have passed, right? And so there's always this idea, which I think is. I think it's a challenging idea. Like I'm very, very much uh, connected to it, but to think about of how that um, potential critique of the ghost results in agency that is um, attacks the most violent components of patriarchy that destroyed uh, some of these women, whether it's you know uh, as workers or um as uh sexual targets on campus or whatever i and i think there's something um there's there's something inspiring uh, about that because what folks won't find in this book are are playing with and expanding lazy tropes <laughs> that reinforce I don't know, for me, retrograde thinking. Um, so do you see it as activist in, 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 that, in that sense? And I mean that in a positive sense in that it, there's a vibrancy towards action within the text. Uh, we, we, definitely, uh, we, we definitely did not want to just be a retread of things that we should, as a society, be getting past. We examine the tropes. We talk about the tropes and how easy it is as a storyteller to fall into them, whether it's the trope of the Miss Havisham uh, lovelorn spinster who is wasting away and melancholy for her life, when in reality, Gertrude Treadwell at the Merchant's House made lots of life choices on her own, and it was her own life choices that made her famous as a ghost. And is the reason why the merchant's house is a museum and her house is preserved at all because of her eccentric mm. choices. Um, and because she was a spinster and lived 93 years in that house when all the rest of her station had moved uptown or moved out of New York city entirely. Um, she held down the fort in this, in this uh, townhouse on fourth street. That's like nothing else in the Eastern seaboard because of the way that everyone else was sort of keeping up with the, you know, respective trends of the time. And she just, kept everything quote unquote, quote unquote, exactly as Papa would have liked it. 
in a time capsule of the <laughs> 1870s when she died in the 1930s. Um, and it's just an incredible thing for, but, but we're interested in like, sure, we're, we're going to talk about the fact that she was referred to as a sort of Miss Havisham character, even during her lifetime, but we're not going to stay with those things. We're going to, we're really interested in unpacking and we are interested in um, a, a, an examination of these stories that give the women their voice and their agency. If that is activist, then, then fantastic. Um, I think, we're just trying to get people to think about these things. We're not coming at it with a specific agenda other than trying to be as truthful to these women's histories as we know how. We don't know all the facts. And in the in the case where we don't know all the facts, we say we don't know all the facts. We know that we're not going to be the definitive end of story for these. Uh, history is still rewriting itself. We realized the Merchant's House specifically, there was something that they as a museum found after our book was published. And they said, you know what, we just found something that even we didn't know. And it changes one of their narratives. And so we're going to have to wait to like a second edition to be like, by the way, uh, the Merchant's House found a letter about, uh, you know, Gertrude's supposed long lost love that questioned some of the narrative that of why they were kept apart in the first place. So anyway, the history is always changing. And it's always rewriting itself. Um, so we're not interested in trying to have a, okay, here is what you have to think about this. We are very clear about trying not to tell you, the reader, what to think, because uh, while I am a bit of a believer in the paranormal, Andrea is a little bit more of a skeptic. We're sort of a, a good Mulder and Scully team, which I think you, you should have going into these <laughs> things. Um, but we really try to tell you not what, uh, we, we, we're not interested in telling you what to believe when it comes to um, yeah. uh, ghost stories, because you don't have to be a believer to appreciate what we're unpacking here. Um, this we're dealing with ghost lore that has been told and retold. So that is extant ghost lore. You can completely not believe it and still get something out of what we're examining. And so I do think making people think is, is our, in our mission. We're not trying to uh, create some sort of specific agenda with it other than making people examine haunted places and make sure we do hope folks will think twice about um, going on a tour that seems to exploit the dead or that seems to uh, benefit from uh, from sort of titillation, uh, especially at the expense of the vulnerable. I mean, if you're going to go sure. and tour a haunted plantation in the South, uh, please only, you know, go and support black tour guides who are telling you the real story. Um, you know, don't, don't whitewash history. Uh, and it's, it, history's painful. So I think that's for us, our, our takeaway is like, please be careful how you engage in ghost tourism, because some, some of it is very exploitative and especially towards marginalized communities. It can be additionally devastating, not just to those disrespecting the dead and disrespecting, you know, horrific institutions, uh, throughout time, but also then disrespectful to the living, um, who are still dealing with oppression in various capacities. So that's something that we try to, we try as best we can to engage with. But that's a that's a tough, tough thorny topic. But um, in, yeah, in this, yeah. we we defer. I, I definitely recommend Taya Miles' Tales from the Haunted South because Taya Miles really grapples with this in a really really incredible way. So um, if that's something that you want to kind of dig deeper on, uh, please please uh, read Taya Miles. It's T I Y A. M-I-L-E-S, yeah. Miles, Tales from the Haunted South. It's one of the things that we, we reference that several times in the book. So, 
Thank you uh, for mentioning that, too. I was thinking um, when you were talking about that, uh, off forgotten, uh, largely recognized as uh, first African-American author, Charles Chestnut, um, mm-hmm. and in his writings, and I'm thinking of uh, offhand stories such as The Gooford Grapevine and the idea of the conjure, which is a little bit different historically. But um, I, I, I think, uh, I thought right off the bat of those type of uh, vibrant stories, they don't feel like um, tied to the time and language, the way that it's written with the dialect. And um and I remember way back then some wordplay with those words there that was subversive uh, to power. So I always liked that uh, bit. One thing I wanted to mention, too, about, um, you know, saying something uh, like you're talking about labor laws and um, we'll talk about we'll talk about art next. But I did an episode uh, with a David Bellino who did a documentary on what's called the station fire uh, mm-hmm. in Rhode Island from 2003, uh, which had a had a, a personal connection uh, to a, a friend of mine, uh, a family friend, uh, lost his life in that. He was a metal so DJ. Sorry. Yeah, uh. it, it was, it's, you know, and it was recently the 20th uh, anniversary, but I, I want to tell you just a bit, just what was sparked in my mind, you know, um, since that that incident um, and the way that uh, the way that Bellino had done um, his documentary was to be like, yo, when you go to these shows, <laughs> look where you are, right? Like life or death, life saving type thing. And um, I think there's a cavalier attitude I probably carried around, other people carry around that needs to be shocked and disrupted. I saw somebody, and I don't get into it, people online, but somebody had made a comment kind of making fun of somebody who wouldn't go to a particular venue because of the way it's situated and how there's one exit in the back. And everybody's making fun of her. I'm like, yo, I'm like, yo, you got to understand. And it was just like, I never mentioned just like, hey, a friend of mine died type of thing. But it was right. like, like, and the thing is what I knew, what was so shocking when we talk about the time that things went up, the uh, the sound insulation in the station, uh, that concert hall that went up there and that was made of almost the most highly flammable. Uh, it was basically like uh, block gasoline and the station venue went up in 90 seconds. You had 90 seconds from the first spark to get out of that building. And um, just, you know, and, and so for me, I grew up in Rhode Island, right? And I'm not trying to stereotype or anything like that, but a lot of places you grow up, there's tired practices. And there's certain many pockets, certainly many pockets of corruption in the state that I could tell you. I knew as a kid, right? You buy your uh, car registrations from somebody and this, well, you also buy your fire inspections and you buy your fire chief and they never go in and inspect. And this is 20 years ago and it's yesterday and it's the place down your street. So when you say those type of things and we drop into that, it's like, yes, it's, it might feel pandemic and over pandemic or, or overbearing, but it's like, Shock, go. This can happen in 90 seconds, 10 minutes, 20 seconds. <laughs> and, yeah. and a lot of times there are people who talked about it before it happened, who marched yes. before it happened. And I think that's like that inspiring point <laughs> is like some of the vitality, the things that we're talking about. I, I thought about the station fire and Absolutely. we're talking about, you know, it's 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 a hellscape. And um uh so uh, I thought about that, and and that was really um, that was really an important uh, uh, point for me. Um, the other 
one other bit I want to mention is that um, types of ghosts and stuff. I grew up, um, I have some uh, Canadian French background, Quebecois. So they, you know, folks, uh, my mom's side would come down to the mills uh, and that's kind of aggregated in the uh, southern New England mm -hmm. uh, area. And, um, you know, it's like my old, my, my old, my grandma, my nana, uh, you know, and the memes. Uh, the French Canadian, uh, the old, and the in the stories, and they speak in partly in French and such, and it's such a a history that I remember um, uh, connecting to. So when I was reading uh, the book, I was very happy to kind of go from different type of places and different type of encounters. Um, we've talked a lot about the industrial, so let's jump from the industrial. Not that it's opposite, but I wanted to talk to you about about art and uh you you create you do a lot of different i even saw jewelry that i started to order but then jumped on to the interview um uh liana what is what is art what is art what is art well that's uh see it's a good thing that my uh introduction section to uh haunted history of invisible women my introduction section is titled existential questions <laughs> I because noticed. I think that I think that you just asked one, um, as in what is it? So so the the what is art um, is 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 kind of the the trick question of all trick questions because um, art is really in the eye of the beholder. You're not making art. You're not doing art. You're not performing art. You're not uh, of any kind without an audience. I mean, and, and some people might have art specifically very, very privately. Well, then you are still the audience then. Um, so it is, and you're doing something for some sort of reaction that you're getting for you. Generally speaking, art is usually intended for an audience. Um, and so it really is a conversation. And the art is never definitive because everyone can see the same piece of art. And I know from having, you know, I have 16 books out and there are all kinds of different reviews for all of my books that all have very different opinions about the books that they read. And some of them are lovely and some of them are nasty. And I have yeah. to, I have to just let that be because everyone's going to come at a piece of art and they're going to take away something different. And, um, and sometimes it, uh, sometimes I will inadvertently push a button that they didn't want pushed or, or I will make them feel a way that they were excited to see written, um, the, a type of inclusion, um, a type of writing about a, a particular type of spectral experience that made them feel seen. Um, I certainly have that when I'm telling my own ghost stories and talking about my relationship to the paranormal, when people say, oh, I'm so glad that you have had that experience because then I don't feel crazy. Um, I just feel like it's a conversation and it's never finished because you make a piece and then that, whatever that is, uh, for as long as society is still standing, it hopefully will be out there in some capacity. So um, that's, you know, I, I was raised with a healthy appreciation for art history. Some of my earliest yeah. memories are are sitting with my dad and one of his art books for, for college and going through and talking about composition through all of the great, you know, many of the great artists through time. So, you know, that was, a, I, I've had that conversation about what does this mean often? Um, and 
it means something different for every type of art, um, every type of music. Um, and certainly there have been questions about what art is that have gone into the court systems. Um, uh, Constantine Brancusi being one of them, his, uh, his sculptures, um, he had to argue that they were art to get them out of like a customs. It was like, I think he was trying to get them through <laughs> customs. And then it was like, and he was like, no, this is art. Um, I, I made these. And, and, and the court was like, no, it's not. And he's like, no, no, really, these are my sculptures. It's, you know, abstract art. So, you know, those, <laughs> those things have, those things do have these really interesting real world uh, uh, follow-ons when, when the question sure. gets caught up in, in, in legality and red tape and all the, I mean, you know, Maplethorpe being another one, you know, the photographer sure. who, you yeah. know, nudity, uh, that was big. I'm, I'm from Cincinnati. So that's where that all started and got really um, uh, touched off a huge national thunderstorm about, um, about obscenity. It's been it's like been that. a little bit of a uh, little bit of time, Liana. Do do you want to give a little bit about that since it's connected to 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 where you are about the maple thought uh, maple? Well, I don't I don't know the I'm not really very well versed on the history, but um, basically there were are very explicit photographs of the human yeah. body that Maplethorpe yeah. exhibited, and they're beautiful photos, but they are of. Yeah various intimate parts of the human body and um, of different racial backgrounds as well. And this, um, <laughs> this very much got people pearl clutching in somewhat conservative Cincinnati, Ohio. And so there were charges of basically sort of obscenity law charges. I don't mm -hmm. know actually what they brought because I don't yeah, know I don't how the history it, yeah. of obscenity law going into yeah. this, but, but that's, that was, as I was growing up, that was like in the background of things. So there, you know, um, that was, was something that again, asked the question, what is art? And there's always going to be gatekeepers about what that means and who gets to be an artist and, yeah. and, you know, and, and what is art is going to change from one culture to the next and one time frame to the next. Um, but, but just for me, it's a conversation because I don't think it ever stops nor, nor should it ever stop in the same way that like, I think that we, if you're, if you're a writer, um, if you're any kind of creative person, I think you also need to be a lifelong learner because you can't, if you're, if you're trying to be writing about the world, you need to keep living in it and learning from it. And so I don't think that that should ever end either. Um, in the same way that the conversation about what is art and what does that mean to you at this point, um, is, is this big open-ended existential question. Yeah, thank you for for your thoughts on that. I remember uh, one thing I liked about Maplethorpe, uh, in addition to his photography, were his ironic titles because it'd be like <laughs> man way, wearing a too small overcoat, and you know the band's manhood's all out there. I mean, like I like that trick you're up to, buddy. <laughs> right, 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 right. I like what I like what you're doing. Um, okay, uh, Liana. That so. Um, uh, hearing, you know, your your comments about uh, what is art, uh, a, a question I have connected to, and, and I heard communication in your answer, but I want to ask the formal question, um, what is the role of art, and in particular, uh, has that changed now? Is it, is, is it now, is it different today, uh, 2023, or is, is, is it holding the same weight, art's always doing the same type of thing uh, with its role? Oh, I mean, that's really contextual to every single time period. I mean, I write a lot of, I write a lot of books set in the, in the Gilded Age. 
um, working class artists in the Gilded Age. And so what art was at that point for a lot of people in the arts and crafts movement was a way to make a living. And for some women in the arts and crafts movement, it was a way to make a living without having to become a housewife to do so um, if they didn't want to. So I think in a lot of ways, art has been a, a way of freedom and creative expression. And in some cases, employment through since the dawn of time. So I think that the what cultures revere artists and how they do, that's changed a lot. I do think that in this country, because we don't have state-sponsored arts in the same way, um, art is relegated to a luxury in ways that Europe yeah. um, has... Europe has held art a bit more sacred and other countries grants, around the world. Like public has, grants and things right, like that. Right, right. Yeah. Has publicly funded the arts. Yeah. Um, yes, we have the National Endowment for the Arts, but it's constantly under attack. Um, yeah. And it constantly has to justify itself um, for its funding. And so I think that in this country, we've been made to feel like, you know, if you're going to school, I went to school, school in rural Ohio. And so the first thing to be cut were the arts programs, never the sports programs. So, you know, arts funding was, you know, and, and I, I think, I think that kids should have access to all things. I think sports are great. I think that's a great program. I just think that kids should have access to all of the programs. I, oh, I yeah. was not good at sports. So I feel like I couldn't, that was not something I could do. Um, yep. So I think that you're made to feel sometimes in this country, like art is a luxury, like it's meaningless, like, like we shouldn't be paid a working wage for it which is a conversation happening right now with the writer's strike, the pending Hollywood writer's strike, yeah. um, you know, and, and also to the, the, the crux of the, the true horror of the AI generated stuff where, you know, taking, taking the creative element, the human element out of it entirely, um, which is a whole nother horror show. Um, but, you know, people felt, people worried about every single invention. People freaked out about the printing press and people freaked out about um, the industrial revolution and people freaked out about the digital revolution. And we're, we're constantly having to have these conversations about what does this mean for us now? And I have to believe in the resilience of the human spirit, but I also have to make sure that we are trying to, you know, those of us who are in the industry are trying to take care of each other as best we know how. And yes, organizing is a way that we can look out for one another. Um, I think is really cool that, um, you know, that, that with this, the AI generative art stuff that um, I think it was University of Boston came up with a, a program called Glaze, which is like a digital layer that interferes with AI trying to manipulate your art, which is really cool. And they were like right on it. And it was free. Uh, I think it's still free for artists to download um, and to utilize it uh, as a way to disrupt someone trying to steal your art. Um, for their, yeah. you know, for their programs, you know, and, so, and basically for those who are unfamiliar with the AI thing, it's just artificial intelligence programs were scouring the internet for various images without, um, without copyright uh, protections and without um, asking for permission from the artists and using them as training models to create different art off of things that were in fact copyrighted material. So, and, and the copyright is there not to be a gatekeeper, but just so that artists can be compensated for their work. The copyright the laws are work. in place for just yeah. for, for people to be able to get, to get royalties, to get income, to get licensing income off of the things that they have created in the, in the long run. Um, you know, uh, as an, as an author, I get royalties off of books, a certain 
percentage off of things that are sold. If those books are are uploaded onto the internet, uh, that's as through internet piracy, then um, I probably will lose my book contract because they w- they won't be able to report sales. Everything's about numbers, and if your book doesn't yeah. earn numbers, then you don't get another book deal. And so I think not everybody understands how the industries work. Um, and I've you know I I start, first started getting published professionally in 2009 and I've I've always been traditionally published rather than self-published because I wanted you know coming from a theater background I wanted a cast of people I wanted a, an editor as my director I wanted a team of people to help me with a book I I didn't want to just do it by myself I think self-publishing is great for people to get their work out there but I have always wanted a team of people making yeah. something happen together. Um, and, and you do have some protections and insurances and some people who are helping you protect your own work when you are in an environment like that, especially with my, my age, my wonderful agent, um, uh, who is actually the reason why we're talking because, uh, Sarah Megabo connected us. So um, Sarah Megabo, big shout out. Love you, Sarah. She's the best. And, uh, <laughs> and so yeah, K- Katie literary is great. And that, you know, so I think that the, um, all this to say, uh, the, the way we can keep looking out for each other is making sure that we understand how art is changing, not to be afraid of how it's changing because it's going to change no matter what. We can't stop change. What we can do is try to protect ourselves in the meantime. And the more that we can do so in terms of a collective, um, things like class action lawsuits. I mean, Getty Images is going after some of these uh, artificial intelligence models that were trained off of images that were protected you know, under copyright law. So it's interesting that, you know, things do have consequences. All of us are going to have to see, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now, where is the role of the artist in, in our ever changing world? Um, But I, I, in the meantime, art isn't going anywhere. And so keep making it, but it's, but it's been hard because I've, I've talked to a lot of artists and a lot of writers who are, have been very feeling very, very hurt by, online conversations that are making artists feel disposable. And that's yeah, the case yeah. across any industry that is looking to mechanize. Um, and that's been the case going back to since the industrial revolution, uh, there's been a fear of making workers irrelevant. Um, and that goes for artists too. So all we can do is just uh, try to navigate uh, the landscape as best we can keep our footing and, um, and make sure that you are in in community with others who can be looking for ways to to shore each other up um, and and look for protections if if in the case of if protections are in fact necessary. Yeah, it brings up uh, you know significant, massive ethical questions. I even thought of the hypothetical with uh, you know um, when you when there's enough record of your voice, which for me there certainly would be. I've done mm-hmm. the equivalent of six and a half days of shows if you listen to it directly over four years uh ken's voice is completely duplicatable which i never Mm -hmm. thought i'd say that um and so maybe yours could be with all the stuff that's out there and then the conversation that i dialed up that you had and i had and all that stuff people could hear it as if i mean it ain't gonna sound at a certain point any different as of whether it really happened or didn't happen, which brings up a massive <laughs> question of, of composition. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to, I wanted to mention something to you, uh, Leanna, um, this is about my connections with ghosts. And I'm going to tell you right up the be- right at the beginning, boring as hell. Um, <laughs> so I my whole life, boring ghost story. no, no, this, this, so, um, you know, I, I, I was, uh, as you might, 
maybe surmise an imagine imaginative kid. Uh, I loved the uh, horror and, and sci-fi and comic books and all that type of stuff. And uh, just loved the spooky stuff and ghosts and everything. And I always, when I was younger, I thought I pretend or I wanted a disposition towards contact. Right. And, mm-hmm. uh, me and my people work, uh, people refer to me as an empath, um, with how I engage with them in energy. But in my head, when I think about this, I always said, well, if that's there, I can have it in other realms, but I don't have those type of experiences. And the one thing though, was an experience, uh, tied to a place that suffocated me temporarily. So I went to a school at Marquette University, uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, a few blocks from where Jeffrey Dahmer's Killing Grounds, which was an apartment on the north side, was located. Mm -hmm. And I remember, and this is, and I can give you the build up in the background, right? So we think uh, November, uh, Milwaukee, of course, uh, that industrial, you know, composition there, Mm -hmm. um, uh, chilly stark and what we're talking about is the absence of a of a building and what a profound experience was for me because i i couldn't like i was standing across i wanted to capture the image and it's an image i can see right in my head right now and i actually did a project off of it um with a, a gentleman named uh donal mosher who does um i did a short class with him regarding I think it was like the spirit of the place, right? So we mm-hmm. get the talking places and residual. And so I had that photograph and I added some components for this super weird horror kind of like art project, real art project. Um, but it was connected to my experience there. I've seen, I'm looking at nothing, right? Mm-hmm. I'm looking at, at the absence of something that was there. I'm like, nothing grabbed me, nothing like that. It was the loss of ear in presence of what what was that was the experience and it was like that big experience and i never expected that which you know just feels so different than the type of things you talk about with other folks who are super sensitive and being like when i was here here's what i saw and this is the kind of conversation i heard you know for me i don't i don't have that and I don't lament that I probably scare me too much. So it's okay. But I, I had that, that one uh, experience in, and when we're talking about the industrial in that background, that stuff is so present for me, like an industrial city and those old apartment buildings or tenements and stuff with hold all that energy for generations. So like I said, not a ton of excitement, but that was my, uh, uh, like I, I still don't know about about that one, but it sure made me think from the time it happened to the present. It's that's incredible, and thank you for sharing that. It's it's you're not alone in uh, an experience like that. Um, it isn't as common as the traditional ghostly figure wandering about, um, but that sense of place memory and seeing a building that isn't actually there that there is a record of hauntings like that that people see and it usually happens when you are not expecting it. I think for me, because I don't go in, I think when people really desperately want to see something and they really are are invested in trying to capture the paranormal, that's usually when you know, ghosts are like cats. They're not going to perform on command. 
So they're <laughs> that's helpful. That's helpful, by the way. That, that they really aren't. They thank really you for aren't. saying that. Thank it's, you. <laughs> it's true. They're they're really not. And so 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 people that want to see things the most very often will not because it's like that almost that desire will it'll either mean that your imagination is going to play tricks on you and you can't trust what you're seeing because your imagination will plant it there because you want to see something. Um, or it's that, that, that desire is actually going to, to sort of put a distance between you and a potential spirit contact. So for me, every single time that anything strange has happened, it has been when I have not been looking for it, have not have, have been focusing on something else. Um, and then seeing something out of the corner of my eye, or it's just, um, it's just sort of a routine thing. Um, and then it's, my routine is interrupted by something inexplicable. I think for you and I think for other people who have very specific kinds of hauntings, because I do believe what you experienced was a haunting and that you had, that was a place memory. That was a residual energy that because you are in tune with that industrial landscape, it was there because you're on its wavelength. So I really think that for some people, they're going to see the things that are in tune with the things that they're passionate about. And in some ways, that's going to kind of conjure something. Um, I've I, Sometimes I've had like a couple of really beautiful little encounters, and one of which I talk in, in Haunted History of Invisible Women, when I just get really excited or almost verklempt about something. <laughs> and I had this fond little touch on my elbow. And it was just one of these things, I, I had such a sense of this fondness in this touch, but this touch was ice cold. And it happened because I was lovingly talking about the merchant's house. And I turned thinking it was my friend and there was no one there. It was just a, a beautiful red settee that I later wow. found out was one of the most haunted spots in the building. But it was just this little fond, you know, goose on my on my elbow that was just responding to me bursting out about how glad I oh was my. that this building was saved because it had almost it had almost been everything had almost been auctioned off and it had almost been you know, torn, uh, we almost lost it to history. And so I just got really emotional about the concept of, ha of having lost this treasure. And it was sort of like this little goose that was like this little touch that said, we're glad that you are, that you care about it too. And I don't know how I could sort of intuit that in the touch, but you know, sometimes when you, when there's a, there's sort of a sentiment that carries with a touch. Um, and again, I wasn't looking for that. I was caught up in the emotion of the house, but it's like that emotion of the house conjured this sort of fondness of, wanting to connect with me about this place that these spirits also love because it's a very active house. And so clearly the spirits don't want to leave either. Um, and uh, I, I feel like that's kind of a, of a piece of like, we were tuned in in that moment to something that mattered, that, that we were appreciative of. That building knew that you would see it because you have seen other spaces like it and would consider yeah. it in a, in a light that it would want to be known. Like I was part of this industrial landscape too. Yeah. I, well, and I, I really, you know, honestly in conversation hearing that, uh, is, is, it really just stimulates, stimulates my mind because, um, it's kind of like, uh, so, so I, like I mentioned, I grew up in Pawtucket and like, mm -hmm. you know, where you grow up and how you connect with places, like it always kind of confused me because, I go to the places in town that are the opposite in general of not all the time, but I go to places that I'm attracted to because they look like that industrial because they're hollow. Like I think of David Lynch and, mm -hmm. you know, photographs of industrial space in a racer head, which makes so much inherent sense to me that I don't think can make 
the same type of sense to, to other folks. So when you mentioned that maybe connection or maybe love or desire for, for it, or like maybe love for it, like the industrial, yeah. maybe there's something like tied I think it, to that. It's, it's almost like you conjured it because you knew and it, it, it like revealed itself to you because you were tuned into, to it. And I think that there is something to be said, like if you, if you go in with an open heart to haunted places, you you will have kind of an astonishing time. You might not necessarily have an actual spectral encounter, but if you go in with love um, in your heart for 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 the past to sort of reveal itself with a with an air of respect, and that's that's the the core of the mission of both Andrea's company, Burroughs the Dead. That's her ghost tour company. It's a company I work for. I was her first hire in the company, and so we, you know, I watched as the company continued to grow and then we teamed up for this book and but the, we teamed up because our ultimate our core principle is respect for the dead above everything else and you know some of these paranormal tv shows where where you know these sort of ghost bros are going in and like yelling at, uh, at in spaces the provocation are, thing right it's the provocation and it's uh, and it's aggressive and in it and it really turns me off. I can't watch any of that stuff. If you're yelling, if you're yelling at a historic space, I, I cannot watch it because it's just so disrespectful to the dead. And it's disrespectful to the building that you're in. Very often that has very troubled history half, half the time. Um, so it's also disrespectful to history and people that suffered there and any of these things. And so that I just can't, uh, again, respect has to be at the first and foremost. So that's, um, I think that that's why you had the experience that you had. Um, yeah. And I, and I, I'm sure that you're going to have others in your life at, a, at other points um, and moments when you least expect it. Because it's not something that happens, again, like they don't perform on command. It's not something, even though I work in the spectral, my my actual inexplicable experiences are maybe, you know, I can maybe count them on one hand. Um, I've had a bunch of them. Um, I've had other ones where the jury is out, like maybe maybe there were other things in play. So I can't say unequivocally, no, 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 this really was a spectral experience. Um, so, but I don't, I don't need to have a certain tally to believe in the paranormal. Um, but I also believe in science. And so I, I don't think these two things are antithetical at all. And I think that sometimes the, the, the spectral realm and anything that's related to it is just a part of science that we don't know yet. There's a whole lot of theoretical physics that sounds a lot like ghost stories in some ways. Yeah, so, you know, right. and, and some stuff about, you know, other dimensions and various other things. And we might just be glimpsing something that's bleeding over from something else. I have no idea. Again, I'm, I'm here for the divine mystery. I love, uh, I love the, the existential question remaining a question, a big question mark is, is fine with me. I don't, I'm not someone who needs to know all the answers because I don't think that it's, I don't think we're going to get them. And I don't think that <laughs> expecting them is, is going to help them get here any sooner. So, um, so I feel like in, in that way, I'm very comfortable with that existential yeah. question and, and very comfortable with that divine mystery, but that really unsettles a lot of people. So I also want to respect that that's not People aren't necessarily comfortable in comfortable that comfortable with with those space. questions hanging out there, right? right. You know, and that like and it, that it, that's it, understandable too. I just happen to be comfortable with them, so that's it's then it's good that I work in a unprovable area. So, 
<laughs> I uh, no, and I, I I like the 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 placement that that you mentioned of uh, uh, questions because there's different things, um, different ways to look at them, and I think uh, I don't know what it is. I find maybe because of my propensity to ask them to be professionally trained in them to be unintimidated uh, in asking them of any person <laughs> tends to like really look uh, conspicuous because there's an idea that questions are uh, invasive, and of course they can be invasive inappropriate questions i think behaviorally that is improper to ask but just in the sense of um asking questions is there's there's always some aspect of provocation of 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 you know of of and 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 of opening up and also the unexpected you know on your on your side um uh uh, or mine. So I want to hit the big, I want to hit the big one. I think we're running into it like, like right about now. Um, and the, and the question is, uh, why is there something rather than nothing? And you don't have to answer it. Absolutely. Given your, uh, condition statements before this about these types of questions. <laughs> so the existential of why is there something rather than nothing? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, from a from just a practical term, uh, in just a practical way, uh, there is matter. <laughs> Mat- matter is 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 tactile. It's tangible. It's here. Um, our interaction with that matter is constantly changing. That's what's kind of interesting is that even matter and even tactile things are not completely static. Atoms are still bouncing around. Um, so I think that. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm not a scientist, but I really like to use like science terms when I'm talking about existential things because it's sure. sort of like, yeah, well, there's also a whole lot of things that science can't explain, um, like the 21 grams that just disappears from a human body after pass after the human body passes. We still don't know where that where that weight goes. We still have no idea. Is that the weight of a human soul? I don't know, um, but but that's a quantifiable something. Um, and so I really think for me. Um, the, the something is, uh, is trying to always be appreciating the some things that are always around me. Um, because I prefer that to nihilism (laughs) personally, So, but that's my choice. You know, I, I try to be, I try to be a relatively optimistic person. Um, I am, I'm a perky goth. I, I grew up in the goth scene in the, in the nineties. And, uh, and so yeah. I, I feel, you know, very, um, very attached to some of those terms of like, okay, this is who I am. So I may look, I'm always dressed in black and I may look like I'm going to be, you know, uh, uh, in a permanent state of melancholy because of the way I dress, but I am in fact bouncing around and, and generally very, very, um, uh, excitable. So, yeah. so I, there's an there's there sometimes can be an antithetical in that, but I find in that antithetical that's where I am, I am myself sometimes a question and and puzzling to people because they'll see how I dress or how I look and then my and and then there's a, a, an excitability or a bubbliness or um or an absolute you know passion for the material that I work in. Draw de vive um, in general, yeah, very much that's so. That's the thing. And so I, I prefer to live in that those spaces rather than the thinking of, of the void or the abyss. Um, you know, and part of that is too, because I did 
also grow up struggling with some depression, some clinical stuff that is something that kind of ran in my family. Um, And I was aware of that, that it ran in the family, but at the same time, I wasn't, it doesn't help you deal with it any easier. So I've had to make an active choice not to let that, the basically the voices of, of nothing uh, kind of drag me into that space. So I, I'm going to be much more focused on the things that I can either control or that I can work on, which is my art and, and my storytelling, um, that that keeps me going forward. Um, because it's, it is for, for me, it is a choice to do that. Uh, because I do understand the flip side of all of this. I very much do. And so I'm, I'm choosing to believe in the something and, uh, and I, and I am a spirit, a very spiritual person and that something and that spirituality is very open. It is entirely, uh, interfaith, uh, cross genre, um, as long as it's loving and not exclusionary, as long as it's a something of, of care and, and, and tenderness and not violence, then, then we're all good. I really, I really appreciate the point you just made. I, I, I think back to, uh, I had a recent episode, um, a friend of mine, uh, 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 Daniel Kern, uh, who I actually went to school with uh, at Marquette, and it was interesting because, um, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I don't, you know, politically, I don't know what I am, you know, like kind of off the chart, you know, Marxist, I think, you know, generally, but, um, uh, but the thing is, is, um, you know, uh, Dan was a, a conservative-minded uh, Christian uh, who taught me so much and um i had him on the on an episode recently and one of the one and i read his book which was uh, really a practical uh practical guide to christianity talking about like issues that make no sense whatsoever that seem to be conflicting uh within maybe traditional doctrine but the one idea that i maybe had encountered before is he had made a declaration it was like you know if, if the idea that if uh, if a god the god that is presented shows themselves to be unworthy they're not un, they're not worthy of worship so it's the depictions of you know the type of christian god where if it goes against our basic values of what we would look for a god in and of itself is an argument for a lack of duty to worship and i'm like Wow. Like, I mean, I really, I really got a, a kick out of that. I thought of one other point. Um, I've had Lorman Rhodes on the show a couple times, and uh, I was really influenced and adored a, a, a book that made me really feel comfortable after reading it. It was uh, Morbid Curiosity Cures the <laughs> Blues, which was a journal, I believe, for a small magazine publication. Uh, back there but the the duality components right um that not i, I don't want to say duality the uh common assumptions around you know like death or contact with these type of things is that it's necessarily extractive of you or dour or more maudlin uh which it can be which can be it can be tied to other type of things but there also tends to be a reactive energy uh that i see to this right by coming in contact with the cemetery be like shit, I'm going to end up there someday. Maybe I should paint a painting or something today. You know, like that it has this uh, uh, vitality uh, to it. And I think that's where the philosophy is. And I think that's where things are are interesting. Um, all this to say, I was in Portland last night outside the door of the Coffin Club for my Joy Division New Order uh, dance party. But 
it was at capacity. They told me to come back in 20 minutes and I'm getting a little bit tired and older and I didn't go back in 20 minutes. So next time uh, I'll make it to the coffin club. Uh, so I appreciate some of your Please go. Stuff. Yes, please go in my stead. I would, I, I, I would have loved to have been there for that, but at least, at least they told you it was at capacity and they were actually honoring is their that, fire code. Going right? back, bring it all Go, back. Going all back. <laughs> At least they um, told you. I, you know what? And I should have validated him and uplifted him at that moment, but I was too, I was too disappointed. I would be and disappointed. Too th- and too thinking of my own self to recognize his greater, <laughs> his greater social act. This is, so. Yes. But so, so this is one of those things where this is a takeaway for any of our listeners who are, who, who, who would, who would dare to make fun of someone for not going to a place with one exit or, or would harass someone when, when a venue's at capacity, think twice because they're actually looking out for you. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, um, I uh, wanted to say uh, with regards uh, a couple other little points uh, to yeah. the to the book. Uh, I appreciated the metal references that I found uh, within uh, haunted history of invisible women. Um, now, uh, so um, hearing a little bit of doom metal reference for me uh, was very enjoyable, and of course. Uh, the what I de- what I saw to be unfortunate contact with Megadeth fandom and uh, uh, um, tying to uh, some desecration of places, but uh, heavy metal and its connection to uh, uh, to to some of this. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, Leanna. Uh, now, when you said when you you had started writing, I had been going through what you've written and uh there's a lot and there's, there's a, a lot. lot of there's there's in 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 in, in steampunk and all yeah. these realms tell I, I tell the tell the listeners because they're gonna they're gonna hear our way of trying to do an interview for this amount of time with each other but <laughs> all those other realms um can you tell us about how you you know the books you have, how people find them, uh, your website, things of that yes. nature. Yes. So I, we've been talking about my nonfiction, but I have 16 fiction novels out. So, um, and they're all sort of a, a gothic gas lamp fantasy kind of feeling. So by gas lamp fantasy, we mean like a Gilded Age setting, but fantastical things, generally speaking, ghosts. So the one unifying uh, characteristic of all of my work is that it all features ghosts and a lot of it features real history. Um, so I'm, I create paranormal worlds in which um, or, or realistic worlds in which paranormal things happen. Um, and some, sometimes those paranormal things are actually taken from some of my real experiences. I'll just sort of heighten them for the purpose, you know, for, for the purposes of Hollywood, as it were. But um, so my my website is just myfullname.com. And um, the I'm also on social media. And you can find my books wherever books are sold. So I have... Uh, several different series that are out and they're all, they all have crossover characters. So you'll, you'll find characters that go from one series to the next. You don't have to have started, you don't have to have read them all in any certain order, but I would say um, that you would want to start in book one of any of my respective series Uh, on my website, on the front page of my website, there, I, I have left a question for you that I try to answer, which is where to start with Leanna's books. And so I, I yeah. say, 
I basically say, if you're looking for this kind of vibe, um, if you're looking for sort of a, a gothic Victorian Ghostbusters with Jane Eyre kind of feelings, then you're going to want to do Strangely Beautiful. If you like the concept of Victorian ghost detectives in, in a, sort of the alienist meets ghost detectives, then you'd want to start with the Spectral City. So those, I basically sort of say some of the back the backdrops and the feelings of each of those uh, various uh, books. I also have a bunch of work that I've done the audiobooks for on a site called Scribed. So it's scribd.com, and that's a that is a subscription service. Um, but you have access uh, every month to thousands, uh, thousands upon thousands of things. Um, so I have narrated my own audiobooks on several different speculative fiction series. Um, so I have a real range of things there, things that are time slip, things that are steampunk and dystopian and all kinds of different cross genre things there. And um, you can do a free trial for 30 days. Um, so if you're curious about that site, that's scribed.com. But also my website. I am curious yeah, about it. I am curious about it. <laughs> so yeah, so I'm sure that there'll be a link that um, you'll, you'll, I'm sure you'll put my name up on the, and my website up yeah. on, on our, on our show notes. So Absolutely. I'm also active on Twitter and Instagram. So you can find me there. Just look up my full name and I should come up. Um and uh, and and if folks have questions about uh, about my work, you can uh, drop me an email via my website, um, or you can ask me via social media. Um, and provide you know, depending on my deadlines, which I have four of them <laughs> that I'm going into, uh, I will try to respond to any sort of appropriate. It has to be an appropriate message for me to respond to it. But um, yes, any questions about my work? Let's have that as a threshold. Yeah, let's just have that <laughs> there as a as just a bit of a guardrail there. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I really love uh, fiction that deals with found families, ghosts, uh, uh, sort of a, a cast of characters with their own quirks um, who all have different talents and specialties coming together to save the day. So um, everything that I write has a hopeful ending, something that goes through dark places to get to uh, a better place. Um, I have horror elements in all of my work, but I don't stay in the horrific place. I use it as a, a way to get through to something that's, that ends up trying to be positive and hopeful. Cause that's, that's the place that I want to try to get to personally. So I want to take my readers with me through that. I, uh, I, I thank you so much for that. And we'll include that in the show notes. I did have one question for you because mm -hmm. I think it's very important. I, I wanted you to answer the question why it's, why it's important that, uh, uh, that folks should know the name Francis Perkins. Oh, Francis Perkins. Okay. So we're going back to the triangle shirtwaist factory fire again for a moment. Um, so Frank Francis Perkins, uh, had been working, um, in, what was at the time in New York City, basically like a um, kind of consumer protection agency. She was sort of trying to protect uh, uh, people who were buying services, um, sort of like a better business bureau kind of uh, position was what she'd been working in in New York. And she was, you know, w kind of well-placed and had good connections. She was at a cafe around the corner from the Triangle Fire when it started. And she came out and she watched the horror unfold from the sidewalk. And she stopped what she was doing and she went on national tour with Al Smith, who was the mayor of New York, and went into labor uh, union meetings and went into factories around the country in industrial cities and started formula 
basically started formulating the nation's first labor laws. She then became the Secretary of Labor under Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and she was the first female cabinet member in our nation's history. And she would go on to say that the New Deal began the day the Triangle burned. Now, the New Deal, of course, was this sweeping uh, legislation lifting uh, this country out from the Great Depression. And, and it was a huge uh, time for, for labor unions. It was a huge time for um, just general works across our nation, uh, public parks, uh, all kinds of public services. Um, so uh, her saying the New Deal began the day the Triangle burned, she was keeping that horror in her memory and was working to honor the dead uh, for the rest of her life. Thank, thank you so much. And, uh, it was, it was, it's, it's so nice. And it's nice to address you as, um, uh, sister union member. Uh, this, uh, podcast, uh, is produced with union labor. Peter Bauer, uh, is the editor and producer, uh, union labor and, uh, union labor from guest host. And, uh, so we got it all around. Uh, want to really share that and connect obviously in that way. Um, and, you know, whether it's labor or the other stories from the past, when things went wrong or that injustice, I really was invigorated by the idea of activism or the reminders of or the presence of um, the women that you obviously try to make uh, visible or trying to make themselves visible in uh, the work that you do. So. Um, it's just, it's just been a really great pleasure to talk to you, uh, Liana. And, um, like I said, this is a way of doing one of our episodes together at this moment. And I'd imagine maybe the next time we talk, we'll be a, a, a different type of way, which might touch on only a couple of the things that we talked about. Who knows? <laughs> it'll, it'll probably still be ghosts or some sort of <laughs> spectral I'm phenomena, bit. even in, you know, next time I have a book out that's fiction, I I'm pretty sure it's still going to have supernatural phenomena of some kind. I, I can't, uh, it seems that that winds its way into everything that I do. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's definitely like a core theme. It's interesting for me that, um, I, I'm one of the few people that like my nonfiction work and my fiction work really do go directly and hand in hand. A, a yeah, lot of how I yeah. talk about the spirit world um, in A Haunted History of Invisible Women, I I have my heroine Eve Whitby live live into that in her work in the Spectral City series. So there's and you know which is set in New York um, and where I'm a ghost tour guide and, and I walk. You know, I sort of walk the reader through some of the most haunted places in the city, almost a, as a bit of a tour guide while you're while you're reading. Um, and I think that you know, so for me, the there the the nonfiction work that I'm doing and I'm interested in doing is going to continue to feed the fiction and vice versa. So that's uh, um, I, I'm I'm sort of pleased to to be uh, existing in this space where I don't feel like I have to choose between a nonfiction or a fiction mindset. Yeah, I, I th thanks for pointing that out. That's a that's a unique unique space. Uh, uh, protect its borders, right? So <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, uh, we've been talking with Leanna Renee Heber, and uh, it, it has been a it has been a great pleasure. Um, I know you get a lot of uh, stuff going on with your book. Um, it's it's being recognized up for awards. I wish uh, the book and what it does. Um, 
what it does. Uh, great success, you great success. This is something rather than nothing.